Rather, baptism is a vivid expression of our participation in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it uh, expresses the fact that uh, through faith that we have actually, we are the recipients, the beneficiaries of what Christ has already done. And so in that action which we do, it demonstrates our oneness with Christ in his dying for sin and, he, and, he, and his being raised to new life. Now, when we become profoundly united with another person, our identity changes. Uh, the day I married Cassie, uh, my identity changed. I became a different person. Um, I wasn't the same person that I was the day before. Uh, no, uh, no longer a single man. I was now a married man. And the two had become one. The idea that when you get married that your identity doesn't change, that you staunchly stick to your own personal individual identity, that's, that's not being united, is it? That's not the biblical concept of the two becoming one. I had a new identity which was now bound up in her and her identity now bound up in me. Mind you, it had been heading in that direction for a long time. It didn't just happen like that. Now, if we are united with Christ, then in verses 4 through to, our, four through to 7, our identity has fundamentally changed. Let me just read, pick it up at verse 6. In verse 6 where Paul says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now what he's saying here is that uh, in our un being united with Christ, that our old self can truly be said to have been crucified with Christ. How about that? Now, last week we learnt about um, uh, original sin, didn't we? <clears throat> that, uh, uh, that we have inherited the nature of, of Adam and that we are united with Adam uh, in his sin and in his spiritual death. So we were, we were in union with Adam, if you like. But that's no longer who we are. In Christ's death, our old self with all of its impurities and worldly lusts, our rebellion against God, our old self, our old identity has been nailed to the cross. Actually, uh, if you look back in verse 4, um, <clears throat> Paul not only says that we died with Christ, but also that we were buried with him. You get the idea? Our old self was not only nailed to the cross but is now dead and buried. It's over. It's final. Death is always final, isn't it? Death is final. Uh, a number of years ago, I met with a man who was uh, dying of cancer. He was a churchman, but he was not a Christian. He uh, didn't believe in such things as the afterlife and so on. 
But he wanted to meet with me a few weeks uh, before he ended up dying because he wanted to uh, lay out for me his plan for his funeral and what would happen after his funeral. And he said to me, well, we're, we're all going to go out to the, to the cemetery and we're going to have the, <clears throat> the, the service out there and, and whatever you do out there. And, and then after that's all done, uh, we'll all go back to the church and the ladies will do a nice lunch for us in the hall. And I had to point out to him that not everyone was coming back to the church, that he was staying there. That's the nature of death. It's final. He needed to work out his plan for what he was going to do after his death and he hadn't figured that one out. Death is final. And in that same way uh, that our physical death is final, that also now as Christians, that is how we are to view our old self, our old nature. It's, it's dead and buried. And the implication of this in verse 7 is that we have now been freed from sin. Do you see that? Freed from sin because... As Paul says, because anyone who has died in that the sinful nature has been nailed to the cross has been freed from sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we no longer sin. Uh, the word which Paul uses here for freed is the same word that's uh, trans similar word to what's translated elsewhere as justified. So what it means is that uh, we've actually been freed from the, uh, the claim, from the hold that uh, sin had over our eternal destiny. For not only are we united with Christ in his death, but we are also united with Christ in his resurrection. See, when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was not the same as like Lazarus's resurrection, was it? Remember Lazarus? Remember Lazarus, he was alive, uh, then he died, then he was raised from the dead, and then he died again, didn't he? Right? Uh, death still had its hold on him, but not so with Christ. Have a look at verses 8, and nine, 8 to 10. In verse 8, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Because Christ, by his death, has actually dealt with death. He's paid the penalty for sin. So that death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. It does so eternally. Our old life, our old identity, it's over. That is how we are to consider ourselves. That is how we are to view ourselves in verse 11. Dead and buried. We have a new identity. We have a new life. A life which now is lived for God. It doesn't always feel like we've got a new identity though, does it? You see, there are three ways in which all of this plays out. Um, first of all, uh, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and our death and our rising with him, being united with him in that, that, that is a past reality. It's a past reality. 
because it's an historical event. And the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that historical event in the past, has already established our new identity. That's the past reality. However, it is also a guaranteed hope. For it is only in heaven when we will be rid of all traces of, of sin in our lives. You looking forward to that? I sure am. It's only in heaven when we will enjoy life with a capital L, life as God always intended it to be, life uh, without sin, life in perfect fellowship with him and with all others who love the Lord Jesus. That's our heavenly, our heavenly hope. But until then, between the death of Christ on the cross, the historical event and the future hope, the guaranteed hope, until then we're in this kind of now but not yet state. Uh, and it, it is a, a present struggle. It's a present struggle, but it is our identity. Our old identity meant that we were rebels against God. You know what? In our new identity, we are still rebels. But we've switched sides. We're now in rebellion against sin, not against God. And so far from being complacent and just caving in, letting sin rule over our lives, as if my sin somehow makes God more gracious, my goodness. No, we actually rebel against sin. We are now rebels against sin. We, we fight against it. We keep on repenting. Instead of obeying sin's evil desires, we, we offer up our very lives in serving God as instruments of righteousness. Now, there is a second way um, that someone might abuse God's grace. And uh, we see it in the second part. It starts in verse 15. Let me read that for you. Uh, again, Paul says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Now, it's a little bit similar to the first objection in verse 1, but it's also a little bit different uh, because it's, it's actually more honest than the first abuse because the first abuse abused God's grace by pretending that somehow we're doing God a favour. Uh, this one makes no pretense of doing God any favour, no pretense, pretense of increasing his grace. It's simply saying that if obeying God's law doesn't make me righteous, then, hey, it doesn't actually matter how I live. God will forgive me. Now, this, again, was not just hypothetical for Paul. <clears throat> uh, this was around at the time, uh, nor is it necessarily hypothetical for us. Uh, in fact, there are even preachers who, uh, when you analyse what they're saying, they're actually preaching uh, forgiveness without repentance. I think it was Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, in his book on discipleship that coined the term cheap grace. And that's what it is, cheap grace, as if repentance is not lordship, uh, doesn't go with Jesus being our saviour. Paul's response is just as emphatic as the first time in verse 1. Not a chance, says Paul, by no means... Don't you know? 
I'll tell you something the Christians in Rome did know about. They were very familiar with the concept of slavery. Um, Rome was a slave society. Apparently, when you get to a certain percentage of the population who are slaves, uh, past that point, they say that the whole economy of the place depends on slavery and that's classified as a slave society. It seems that in the first century about 35 to 40 percent of the population of Italy were slaves. Now there's several ways that people could become slaves. Being a prisoner of war was one way. Um, Or you could be born into slavery if mum and dad were slaves and you were born in that house and you were a slave as well. Often people would sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off a debt. You owe some of money to another person, you can't pay it back, so you go and sell yourself as a slave to someone, take the cash, hand back the cash to the other person you know, and then you're a slave to the person to whom you have offered yourself uh, as a slave. I reckon you want to think pretty carefully before doing that, don't you? Um, because two things about being a slave, one, you must obey your master, and two, you're not free to leave. If you don't like the job, you can't exactly just resign and walk off the site. Now in verse 19, it seems that Paul is actually just a little bit reluctant to even use this as a metaphor for our relationship with sin and our relationship with, with God. Uh, because it does break down at some points, but it's actually quite a good metaphor. It's something which his, his readers could certainly understand. Because, you see, there is a sense in which we are all slaves. Have a look at verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, at first glance, in verse 16, it seems a little bit like a tautology when he says, don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey? Um, It seems a bit repetitive there, but what Paul is saying here is very important. The point is that when you offer yourself as a slave, then you are no longer your own. You now, you forfeit your own rights to ownership over yourself. You now belong to the one you obey. And there's only two options. Either you are a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness, meaning a slave to God. There's no third option. No third option. I mean, someone, someone might say, well, you know, I don't serve God, but I don't consider myself to be a slave to sin. And that's because they misunderstand understand sin. That's because they're thinking of sin in terms of the, things, the really, really bad things that people might do. Whereas the very nature of sin is that you don't serve God. Right? So there's only two options. There's no in-between option we're all slaves and the question which every person needs to answer for themselves is whose slave are you 
People say that by rebelling against God that they've entered into true freedom. That's not true freedom. It's freedom. It's disguised as freedom, but it's bondage. It's bondage to self, bondage to sin, and ultimately bondage to the judgment of God. For the wages of sin is death. Paul goes on to say, We're all slaves. Whose slave are you? So in this present struggle then, how can you and I, um, what, what can we do to make sure that we keep on rebelling against sin and serving God as our rightful master? Well, I've got a hot tip for a couple of weeks' time. The Holy Spirit is a great help there. And the Holy Spirit, we, Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit when we come to, to chapter 8 of Romans. More about the, him later. But there are, are a couple of helpful things which we can draw out of this chapter. Uh, firstly, in verse 17, did you notice that Paul is actually quite encouraged, he's quite impressed by the Christians in Rome. Uh, see what he says here in verse 17 when he speaks uh, to them. He says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. They wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching. Now, our lives and our behaviour are shaped by the things which enter into our minds. Is that true? And the things which enter in our minds, lot of stuff that's constantly entering into our minds the question is what are the things we're going to allow to shape our thinking and to shape our behavior the choice is either between the word or the world and the world is uh, the constant drip of the values of our world are seeping into our minds and our hearts continually and so, like these Christians in Rome, we need to be people who sit under the teaching of God's Word. And we need to allow uh, God's Word to transform, to, 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 uh, to shape our minds and to transform our lives. Because as we uh, are exposed to God's Word, we understand more of who He is, uh, how He would want us to be living, and we can see areas in our life that do need to change. And, uh, and so in the battle to keep on rebelling against sin and serving God, our minds and our hearts must be transformed by the living word. And it seems that the Roman Christians, that they wholeheartedly obeyed the teaching that they had received. Secondly, do you ever reflect on what life would be like for you if you were not a Christian? Think about that. Or do you reflect back to what life was like for you before you became a Christian, uh, if that is your experience? What were you like then? Verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. 
That is, if we are not constrained, if we are not controlled by God's righteousness, then we're kind of free of that, but we're slaves to sin. Sin has free reign in our lives, unconstrained by righteousness. So when you were unconstrained like that, in verse 21, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things lead to death. What was it like when you were unconstrained by righteousness, when sin had free, when you were in slavery to sin? What was it like? Was it good? Was it really good? Was living without God in your life so much better than living with God in your life? So much more meaningful, so much more joyful, so much more satisfying? Well, there's a reason why many of us have turned to Christ. The emptiness, the the hollow promises of this world, the pain and the guilt of our sin which have driven us to the grace of God in Jesus which leads not to death and judgment but to eternal life for in verse 23 the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus good verse isn't it worth remembering remembering but more than so, we all are going to find it easy to drift into sin, to succumb to temptation. But in that moment of temptation, it's it's worth um, pausing and thinking about: Well, is this really going to satisfy? Where is this really going to lead me? But more than that, is this who I really am. Is this what it means in verse 11 to to count myself as dead to sin but alive to God? In the moment of temptation we need to think is this my identity or does it make absolutely no sense of who I am in Christ? And as we ask those questions Let's be drawn back to rejecting sin, rebelling against it, and offering ourselves instead as tools of righteousness for our God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for the death of Christ on our behalf and his resurrection from the grave. We thank you that we are united with him in death to our old self and in a newness of life that we might walk in a way that is worthy of you. We pray for each one of us that we would not be complacent about sin but rather that we would be in the battle, that we would be rebels against sin where before we were rebels against you. Help us, Lord God, to, uh, to keep on persevering, to keep on struggling to keep on reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ 
and the great life and the future that awaits for those who are in him. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.